Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to those readings from his holy word, and to him be the power and the glory, now and forevermore. Amen. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The first announcement of the Passion makes it clear that Jesus did not wish to gain disciples under false pretenses. From the very first, he had made it clear that he was calling them to work. Here he puts it, the inevitable suffering, and it is taken straight to the front. He never asked people to go on a picnic. Suffering, the cross and death were indeed in plain view. He was not to be the Messiah of popular expectation. His way was to be the way of suffering. Unless we see that clearly, we miss both the glory and the pain of the Christian gospel. For the glory and the pain are inseparably intertwined. Without it, Christianity can degenerate into petty legalism or a set of didactic moralisms. If Jesus had not chosen the way of suffering, endured the cross, his life would have had little to say to individuals or to a world in an agony of suffering and pain. He would have spoken only as one who had never faced or conquered the pain and terror of evil. 
His hands have been strong to save because they were scarred hands. Jesus spoke plainly of the cost of his ministry and the cost of discipleship. I'm afraid that many times we do not follow his frankness. We mumble his words and we gloss over them. So often, discipleship has been presented with tragically mistaken persuasiveness, as something easy, even as something that does not matter very much. And as a natural inevitable result, the kind we have enlisted has not mattered very much. When we knock the price down, we blot out the deepest appeal of Christ. The theologian Charles E. Raven, in his autobiography, A Wanderer's Way, tells of his disappointment at having confirmation presented at Uppingham Boys' School as a matter of routine. Perhaps you could say it was the right and proper thing to do. But then he goes on to write with great feeling, and dear Christ, how some of us needed you. A church may win people by discussing the true meaning of discipleship, but it cannot do anything after it. And it's got to get that through before they get them in. Jesus says this plainly, do we? We read in verse 32 and 33, he spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Strange that just a few verses earlier, Peter had acclaimed Jesus as the Lord's anointed. Now he rebukes him. I suppose we're tempted to say impossible, but we do it all the time. Peter's unwillingness to accept Jesus' idea of messiahship, I believe, was perfectly natural in his situation. It went against every idea of the Messiah which he had ever known. He had to learn the manner of Messiah that Jesus was. It was no wonder that he balked at the first lesson and refused it completely. With us, I believe it is different. Centuries of Christian history have made us familiar with the idea of a suffering saviour. We accept it and sing readily in the cross of Christ thy glory, and Jesus I my cross have taken. Yet often, often in the deep set of our minds, in our attitudes and actions, we do rebuke him. We prefer a conception of discipleship with the cross taken out of it. Multitudes of Christians prefer a cheerful, moderate, sensible religion. We shut out the necessity of any painful sacrifice. I don't suppose we put it in these words, but in some ways we say, look here, Jesus, don't get too extreme or fanatical. After all, we live in a very practical world and a cross is a very impractical thing. But our desires, our shrinkings, and our actions say it. How common is it for us to rebuke Jesus 
by the things we do, for his claim to understand allegiance, for his refusal of violence and his choice of a way of love, for his insistence on denial of self. Peter suggests much more cheerful and sensible views of the future rather than those arriving out of the divine counsel in the impending death of the Messiah. And yet because of this, Jesus Christ calls him Satan. And I believe this is worth eternal remembrance. Here is the temptation continued. The merely cheerful and sensible views of religion are always of Satan. A Christianity diluted into a very cheerful and sensible religion in which God's act of redemption in Christ has dropped out of notice is emphatically of Satan. A sensible and optimistic doctrine of progress from which all realisation of the costly suffering and pain of overcoming evil is eliminated, I believe is a perennial masterpiece of Satan. And a conception of Christian discipleship reduced to common sense, in which there is no room for the foolishness of the cross, is indeed a satanic triumph. In verse 34, we hear this. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Here is one of the greatest declarations of Jesus. And here we have two of the hardest words a person could ever face deny and cross. The word deny is not a vague, foggy word. It is not easy to evade. It is appallingly sharp. It's appallingly clear. It is the same word used of Peter's denial of Jesus and means let him make himself a stranger to himself, not a pampered favourite whose insistent desires are law but a complete stranger to whom he can and does say no. Denying ourselves means far more than refusing to give things to ourselves. Self-denial, in a common use of the term, is abstaining from certain luxuries and delights and may even perhaps induce a sort of self-assertion in applauding our self-control and generosity, making, I suppose, spiritual little jack horners out of ourselves, whispering, what a good boy am I? The denial of self is something deeper. It is making ourselves not an end, but a means in the kingdom of God. It is subordinating the clamouring ego with its shrill claim for priority with I, me, or mine. It is concern for self-assertion, its insistence on comfort and prestige, denying self not for the sake of denial as a sort of moral athletics, but for Christ's sake, for the sake of putting the self into his cause. 
Now transfer that to a group of disciples, to a church or an organisation. Surely to a church comes the same call of Jesus to deny itself, to take up a cross. How hard for an institution to put some larger good for the whole body of Christ and the world above its own peculiar goods its cherished traditions and favours, its financial security, its relative prestige, its familiar ways endowed with an aura of sacredness. In a word, above itself, its assertive ego. Is it not the refusal to deny self which chiefly blocks Christ's desire that we read of in John 17, chapter 20, uh, verse 21, that they may all be one. And the word cross, here too, is a difficult word. I believe it has certainly been one of the most misused words in the whole vocabulary of Christianity. We have given the name cross to so many things that are not crosses at all in the truly Christian sense of the word. People speak of calamity as a cross that they must bear. But a calamity is not a cross. It may be a tragedy, but it is not a cross. People speak of sorrow and loss as a cross. I believe they are a heavy burden, but they are not necessarily a cross. People even speak of their own shortcomings of temperament and disposition their uncontrolled anger, their undue sensitiveness, their imp impatience as a cross that they must carry. Indeed, I've often seen people get quite pious about that. Taking up a cross is not stoically enduring what happens to us. It may be a great virtue, but Christianity is more and other than the modern stoicism into which it is fre frequently distorted. The cross of Jesus was a deliberate choice of giving his life as a ransom for many. His deliberate choice of ministering to man's need of the truth about God, to their need of love, cost what it might. Taking up a cross for the disciple means the deliberate choice of something that could be evaded. To take up a burden, we are under no compulsion to take up, except the compulsion of God's love in Christ. It means the choice of taking upon ourselves the burdens of other lives, of putting ourselves without reservation at the service of Christ in preparing a way for the kingdom of God, of putting ourselves in the struggle against evil, whatever the cost may be. There's a beautiful piece of dialogue in George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan, in which the Archbishop of Reims tells Joan that she is in love with religion. Joan brightens and answers, I never thought of that. Is there any harm in it? The Archbishop answers profoundly that there is no harm in it, but there is danger. 
there is. There was a danger for Joan, and if we love God, there is danger. The danger of a cross, the danger that life will be upset, that it will be loaded with the burdens of others, that it will be thrown into deadly combat with strong powers of evil. But it is a bright danger that illuminates life with a divine light. John Bowring put it like this, when the sun of bliss is beaming, light and love upon my way, from the cross the radiance streaming adds more lustre to the day. Amen. <laughs>